It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child abuse, drug use, sexual assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In January of 2007, the adult magazine Maxim published an article called Babes Behaving Badly. The piece profiled numerous incarcerated women with salacious descriptions of their crimes. 34-year-old Brittany Holberg never imagined she'd become famous enough to be featured in a magazine, even one as risque as Maxim. But she knew that every press mention she could get no matter what the context, had the potential to save her life. For nine years, Brittany had been locked in a struggle against the Texas criminal justice system. As she lost appeal after appeal, she knew that her only shot at changing her fate lay in the shifting public perception of the death penalty. Now, Brittany saw her salvation in the glossy pages of the adult magazine. She needed all the support she could get to have any chance at overturning her death sentence. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This is our first and only episode on the life and crimes of Brittany Holberg, who in 1996 was accused of murdering 80-year-old A.B. Towery Sr. In spite of Brittany's insistence that she killed Towery in self-defense, she was sentenced to death. Today, thanks in part to her ongoing appeals, Brittany is a notable figure within the anti-death penalty movement. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Brittany Holberg had a troubled childhood, raised by an addict mother. She was a frequent victim of violence and repeated sexual assault in her youth. In 1989, at the age of 16, Brittany ran away from home to elope with her boyfriend, 17-year-old Ward Holberg. But the marriage fell apart, and by 1993, she returned to Texas, where she'd grown up. After a knee injury, Brittany became addicted to painkillers and later to cocaine. Soon, she began supporting her drug habit through sex work. On November 13, 1996, Brittany entered the home of 80-year-old A.B. Towery. A brutal attack ensued. Brittany claimed that she acted in self-defense. After her arrest, Brittany was found guilty of murder and sentenced to execution by lethal injection. Since then, she's filed and lost numerous appeals from death row in Texas. Brittany's case became a flashpoint in the anti-death penalty movement. In this episode, we'll break down the psychological factors that contributed to Brittany's substance abuse and financial problems. We'll also discuss Towery's death and Brittany's subsequent arrest, trial, and numerous appeals. Finally, we'll unpack some of the politics of the death penalty in the U.S. and how Brittany's story impacts the prison reform movement. Brittany Marlowe was born on January 1, 1973, in Amarillo, Texas. Her single mother was, as Brittany described it, a hippie drugster with ongoing addiction issues. Her father was also a heroin addict. He spent most of Brittany's childhood in prison, so she barely knew him. Brittany's life with her mother was unstable. While Brittany was still a young girl, her mother became involved with another heavy drug user named John Schwartz. The couple married and subsequently divorced four times. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology from here. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. A team of researchers from Uppsala University's Department of Women and Children's Health found that children with an active father figure are better behaved than those without a male parent. Young girls without fathers tend to develop more psychological problems and are more likely to commit crimes as adults. Even when Brittany's mother and stepfather were together and happy, they frequently drank and smoked marijuana around Brittany. Brittany was often left home unattended, while her mother and stepfather went on benders together. A study with Harvard Medical School found that the children of households with excessive drug or alcohol use are three times more likely to be abused and four times more likely to be neglected. This unstable home environment can impede the child's ability to mature into an emotionally healthy adult. Unfortunately, Brittany faced abuse from a young age. At only five years old, she was sexually assaulted. Accounts vary on whether the perpetrator was her stepfather or an unidentified babysitter. 
There doesn't seem to be any record of a subsequent police report or investigation. Trauma continued to plague Brittany throughout her teenage years. One day in 1986, when Brittany was 13, a group of men attacked her while she was walking home from school. Brittany tried to fight back, but she was outnumbered, and the men were much stronger than she was. For the second time in her life, Brittany was sexually assaulted. After this attack, Brittany no longer felt safe at home. She began spending time at her grandmother's house. While she never officially moved out, Brittany saw less and less of her own mother and stepfather. By the time she was 16 in 1989, Brittany decided she'd had enough of her parents' unsafe, unstable home and ongoing drug use. She announced that she was dropping out of high school and moving with her 17-year-old boyfriend, Ward Holberg. Brittany and Ward drove to California together and quickly married. After her troubled childhood, Brittany was now committed to getting things right with Ward. She was going to maintain a stable, drug-free household in which she could raise a family. The stability didn't last long. Two years after Brittany moved out of Amarillo, she found herself pregnant. Her daughter, Mackenzie, was born on August 27, 1992. The timing was terrible, as 19-year-old Brittany's marriage was already crumbling due to Ward's violent outbursts. Brittany and Ward divorced before Mackenzie's first birthday, and soon the father and daughter relocated to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Brittany, unemployed, lacking a high school diploma, and now separated from her daughter, returned home to Amarillo. She felt like she had nowhere else to go. The University of Arizona's David A. Sparra wrote that divorce can have a severe impact on a person's psychological health and even decrease their physical resiliency. After a divorce, a person may make poor decisions or find it difficult to overcome challenges. Brittany's challenges had just begun. Shortly after Brittany moved back to Amarillo, she suffered a knee injury. Her doctor prescribed painkillers. By the time the prescription ran out, 20-year-old Brittany had developed a full-fledged addiction. The American Psychological Association noted that addiction is a biological as well as psychological condition. Genetics account for roughly half of the risk factor for addiction, while social, psychological, and environmental factors also play a role in a person's susceptibility. For a woman like Brittany, with a genetic disposition toward addiction in addition to her childhood traumas, painkillers were a trap. Even worse, Brittany had lost two families and had no meaningful support system. Once she was caught up in illicit drug use, it was almost impossible for her to get clean again. A quick note as we discuss Brittany's years of drug abuse, because Brittany was homeless and engaging in illegal sex work, there aren't great records on the dates of many of her experiences. We've done our best to keep this portion of the story in chronological order. Brittany teamed up with her aunt and began running a scam to obtain more painkillers. They'd take turns going to dentists and faking severe toothaches. Then they'd split their prescriptions. Eventually, the local dentists caught on to their grift and cut them off. Brittany needed a new way to feed her addiction and began to self-medicate with street drugs, particularly cocaine, when the withdrawal got too bad. 
Mental health nurse practitioner Timothy J. Legg wrote in his article, What Causes Addiction?, that over time, drug users develop a tolerance, requiring more frequent and larger doses of the drug. Usually, an addict will intensify their drug use both to offset their higher tolerance and to try to delay the onset of withdrawal symptoms. This creates a vicious cycle of continuous drug abuse. Brittany's methods for getting drugs intensified along with her addiction. In April of 1993, 20-year-old Brittany started committing petty crimes to fund her addiction. She forged checks and opened bad credit cards. She even stole her mother's car and stole a gun from her stepfather. When these crimes still didn't get Brittany the money she needed, she turned to sex work. Her new profession was incredibly dangerous. On at least one occasion, Brittany was again sexually assaulted. This time, her attacker beat her so badly that Brittany needed to be hospitalized. After doctors released her, Brittany returned to her self-destructive spiral. She didn't know how to pull herself out. At some point in the next three years, Brittany became homeless. She was caught in a cyclical pattern of incarceration and release. Sometimes, she'd only be free a few days between arrests. During one such stint in jail in the summer of 1996, she got a shot at sobriety. 23-year-old Brittany met a pair of visiting Christian missionaries who invited her to enter rehab. With their encouragement, Brittany enrolled in the Randall County Jail Addiction Rehabilitation Program. While there, the missionaries continually reassured Brittany that she was loved, supported, and valued. She wasn't used to such unconditional affection. According to clinical psychiatrist C.E. Zupanik, a social safety net is a key ingredient in a healthy addiction recovery plan. When addicts have access to practical and emotional support, they're far more likely to successfully manage their dependency. The ministry had a strong evangelical element. Brittany spent as much time praying and attending Bible studies as she did addressing the underlying causes of her addiction. Journalist Lee Weinerman wrote for the American Psychological Association that an effective drug rehab plan addresses not only the physical factors of addiction, but also psychological elements. To really address the root causes of drug abuse, a rehab program should include cognitive behavioral therapy or other evidence-based treatment programs. Unfortunately, financial and societal factors mean many programs don't use evidence-based practices and leave their patients more likely to backslide into addiction. According to local reporting, Brittany exited the rehab program completely clean. And yet, within a month, she resumed her cocaine use. The National Institute of Drug Abuse stated that drug addicts' recidivism rates, or the rate at which a recovered addict goes back to using drugs, are comparable to the symptom return rates for untreated diabetes, hypertension, and asthma. This is one reason that the National Institute of Drug Abuse advocates for rehab programs to focus on ongoing addiction management rather than a one-time cure. By mid-1996, 23-year-old Brittany was, once again, homeless, addicted to painkillers and cocaine, and engaging in sex work to make ends meet. 
she believed that her life couldn't get any worse. Soon, she'd learn how much farther she could fall before she hit rock bottom. Next, Brittany kills a man. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. Brittany Holberg spent almost her entire life surrounded by drug use, from her addicted, neglectful parents to her aunt who helped her run prescription pill scams. By 1996, 23-year-old Brittany was wholly in the throes of painkiller and cocaine addiction and financed her dependency through sex work in Amarillo, Texas. Ina von Weissenbeck's paper, Sex Work Criminalization is Barking Up the Wrong Tree, explored the impacts of criminalization on sex workers and other people whose livelihoods are illegal. Because sex workers face stigma and arrest, it's difficult for them to graduate to a legal profession. Most job applications ask, have you ever been convicted of a crime? During the previous three years, Brittany had been arrested on dozens of occasions. Most of her arrests were for charges related to sex work. But police also took her in for trespassing, giving false information to a police officer, and parole violations. In addition, she faced a felony substance abuse charge. On November 13, 1996, Brittany doubted her life could get any worse. But her rock bottom came when she met 80-year-old A.B. Towery. Despite his old age, Towery lived alone in an Amarillo apartment. He received regular support from his adult children, who frequently visited him and helped him with upkeep in his unit. Towery loved cars. According to his son, Russell, Towery liked to restore Model Ts and collected old parts. He took road trips with his children and was known as a loving, generous father. But Towery had a dark side, which included a history of domestic violence. Once, he threatened his son with a knife during an argument. In late November of 1996, Russell planned to buy his 80-year-old father a new car. When Towery heard of his son's plans, he insisted that Russell hand over the cash instead. Russell complied, so Towery had $1,400 in his wallet on the day he met Brittany. We should note that there is a significant disparity between the police's official version of events of November 13, 1996, and Brittany's account. We want to keep this account as factual as possible, so we'll begin with the official version of events, then delve into Brittany's side of the story. Towery lived within walking distance of an Albertsons grocery store. At 4.30 p.m. on November 13th, he walked to the store, bought some food, and then returned home. 
On his way back to his apartment, Towery passed 23-year-old Brittany. She was loitering in the courtyard outside his building. At this point, Brittany was coming down from a cocaine binge that had lasted for over a week. She couldn't remember sleeping in the past 10 days. She was beginning to feel the effects of withdrawal. According to Amanda Lautieri of American Addiction Centers, the symptoms of cocaine withdrawal are more psychological than physical. After the high wears off, a cocaine user will struggle to concentrate, will feel both exhausted and restless, and will lose the ability to feel pleasure. She will also experience an almost overwhelming, all-consuming need for more cocaine. Brittany asked if she could come inside, claiming that she needed to make a phone call. Towery let Brittany into his apartment. Once inside, she demanded that he give her all his money. Towery refused. Desperate, Brittany attacked him, trying to wrestle his wallet out of his pants. Maybe Brittany thought that she could easily overpower the elderly man, or perhaps her withdrawal symptoms were so intense that she wasn't thinking at all but she wasn't prepared for Towery to put up a fierce fight. For 45 minutes, the pair grappled, each scratched, bit, kicked, and punched, eager to gain the upper hand. Brittany grew more brutal with each passing minute. The Mayo Clinic explained that people, when faced with a threat, will often exhibit the fight-or-flight response, otherwise known as an acute stress response. The hypothalamus, which triggers fight or flight, can't distinguish between a real threat or some other source of stress. In this case, Brittany was overwhelmed with a massive burst of adrenaline. Even though she began the fight, she physiologically responded as though she was the one being attacked. At one point, Tauri stumbled from the living room to the kitchen. This was a deadly mistake. Brittany chased after him. She saw the heavy cookware and sharp knives. They were perfect weapons. Brittany grabbed a frying pan and smashed it down on Towery's head. Towery stumbled, but remained standing. So Brittany reached for a new weapon and found a hammer. She bashed it against Towery's skull. But Towery still didn't fall. Brittany grabbed the nearest sharp implement she could find, a grapefruit knife and stabbed him. Finally, Towery went down. He gasped as blood began to gush out of his torso. Now, there was no going back. Brittany realized that she had to finish what she'd begun. Towery had to die. She continued to stab Towery, using a butcher knife, a paring knife, and even two forks. Towery, still conscious but fading fast, tried to fight her off. He batted aside the knives, leaving shallow cuts on Brittany's legs and stomach, and tried to run away to get help. He stumbled toward the front door, bleeding profusely, but Brittany pulled him back into the apartment. She wasn't going to let him get away. By now, Towery was lightheaded. He had taken a lot of blows to the head and was losing a lot of blood. He staggered back into the living room, where the fight had started, and collapsed. Towery was unconscious, but Brittany wasn't done yet. She lifted the living room lamp and shoved it down his throat. Towery choked on the lamppost and died. 
Finally, it was over. Only now did Brittany have the chance to calm down and assess the situation. She surveyed Towery's apartment. The furniture was toppled, the kitchen in disarray. She was covered in blood. One thing was certain, she couldn't call the police. Brittany took a shower in Towery's bathroom. She couldn't put her bloody clothes back on, so she raided Towery's closet to find what would fit. As she dressed in the dead man's clothes, a strange sense of calm came over her. Anger management counselor Aaron Carmen noted that it takes the body approximately 20 minutes to return to its natural state after a fight-or-flight response. After her shower, Brittany found herself once again able to think clearly, and she turned her thoughts toward how to get away with murder. She was astonished to find $1,400 cash in Towery's wallet, a windfall. She didn't even mind that the bills were bloodstained. Brittany took the money, then dropped Towery's wallet back on top of his body. Brittany's last step was to check Towery's medicine cabinet. She didn't find anything she wanted to take. Only afterward did Brittany leave Towery's apartment. It had been over an hour since she first arrived. It didn't take long for Brittany to wave down a car that was friendly to hitchhikers. She tipped the couple inside $200 for a ride to a familiar crack house. The driver seemed startled to find blood on his bills, but accepted them anyway. Once Brittany arrived at the house, she did what almost any drug addict would do if they had cash to burn and nowhere to go. She bought hundreds of dollars worth of cocaine. Then she spent the night getting high in a hotel room and trying to forget about the events of the day. We don't know when police arrived on the scene or why they were called to investigate Towery's apartment, but when they entered, what they found shocked them. Towery had been brutally beaten and stabbed 58 times with various kitchen implements. His emptied wallet lay open on his body. Prescription pills were strewn throughout his apartment. The evidence clearly indicated that Towery's death was a robbery gone wrong. When witnesses testified that Towery was last seen entering his apartment with Brittany Holberg, she became suspect number one. Brittany knew it was only a matter of time before the police linked her to Towery's death. So, after she came down from her binge, she fled Texas to the relative safety of Tennessee. She knew that if she were arrested, her chances at a not guilty verdict were slim. Juries had little sympathy for sex workers or drug addicts. But even though she knew the risks, the 23-year-old continued to abuse cocaine and sell sex in Tennessee. She was too caught up in the cycle to break out. After three months with no new leads on Britney's whereabouts, an episode of America's Most Wanted profiled her. In the 90s, America's Most Wanted was a massively popular show that broadcast information about at-large criminals and encouraged viewers to call in tips. According to Deadline, America's Most Wanted was the longest-running program on Fox and led to 1,151 fugitive captures during its 23-season run. Britney's segment aired three times, and her tip line received over 300 calls. Soon, 
investigators knew they could find Brittany in Tennessee. On February 17, 1997, 24-year-old Brittany emerged from a McDonald's in Memphis, Tennessee to find police waiting for her. She didn't resist. After her arrest, Brittany had the opportunity to place a phone call to her mother. She did so and tearfully admitted over the line that she'd killed a man. Brittany didn't realize that the police were listening in or that they'd construe this conversation as a murder confession. During questioning, Brittany related her own account of how she killed Towery. Her story differed wildly from the police's version of events. Soon, her arresting officers would have to decide if Brittany Holberg was a murderer or a victim. Coming up next, Brittany gives her statement. Now, back to the story. On February 17, 1997, 24-year-old Brittany Holberg was arrested for the murder of 80-year-old A.B. Towery. Brittany went on the run after Towery's death, hiding in Tennessee. All the while, she abused cocaine and supported herself with sex work. Finally, in police custody, Brittany had the chance to tell her version of the story. According to Brittany, Towery was one of her longtime regular customers. A fellow sex worker, known only as Green Eyes, had initially encouraged Brittany to work with him. Towery hired her on the night of November 13, 1996. While Brittany was working, she pulled out her crack pipe in order to take a hit. She had no idea that Towery would have such a visceral reaction to her drug use. With no warning, he flew into a rage. Towery grabbed a frying pan and struck Brittany in the back of the head. Brittany seized whatever weapon she could find to defend herself. First, the same frying pan, then kitchen knives, then even forks. When none of these slowed Towery's murderous rage, she resorted to grabbing a lamppost and jamming it down his throat. Then, she fled the scene of the crime because she was too afraid to think straight. The police knew Brittany was lying. The crime scene wasn't consistent with self-defense. The blood spatter evidence didn't match the events as Brittany described them. Pooled blood by the door proved Towery tried to escape before Brittany pulled him back into the room. Brittany was barely injured. If her story was true, she would have been severely wounded. The investigators encouraged Brittany to tell the story again, but this time to be truthful in her account. According to an article published in the Amarillo Globe News, Brittany recounted eight different versions of Towery's death during questioning. While details shifted, Brittany was consistent on one point. She'd killed Towery in self-defense. But the police weren't buying it. They knew Brittany took the time to shower and steal over $1,000 from Towery's wallet. Witnesses, including the couple who gave Brittany a ride, reported that Brittany was calm when she left Towery's apartment. She didn't seem like someone who was terrified after fighting off an attacker and fleeing for her life. After questioning, the police charged Brittany with capital murder. Brittany knew her life depended on a good defense. She was facing the death penalty. 
In order to help establish Brittany's character, her council repeatedly visited Memphis-area truck stops. There, they interviewed sex workers, hoping some of them knew Brittany and would be willing to testify on her behalf. Their efforts were largely unsuccessful, likely because many of these women were reluctant to cooperate with the same judiciary system that criminalized them. Brittany's trial began in the spring of 1998, when she was 25. The prosecution focused on poking holes in Brittany's testimony and disproving her claims of self-defense. They'd been unable to find any evidence of Green Eyes, the sex worker who supposedly introduced Brittany and Towery. It seemed she simply didn't exist. One of the prosecution's major arguments was that Brittany premeditated her crime. She lied about needing to make a phone call specifically to gain access to Towery's apartment. She never worked for him at all. Towery's family testified that he was old and infirm. Before his death, his sons visited him every single day. Towery's children couldn't imagine he had enough alone time to see Brittany on a regular basis. An 80-year-old family man just wasn't the sort to pick up sex workers off the streets. But Brittany's defense lawyer disagreed. He called two sex workers, Connie Baker and Diana Wheeler, who had taken Towery as a client in the past. The prosecution, however, called their veracity into question by pointing out that Wheeler was once arrested for giving a police officer false information. As for Baker, the prosecution noted her long criminal record in an attempt to discredit the witness. A paper published with the Cornell Journal of Law and Public Policy noted that members of juries will often make determinations based on pre-existing bias rather than evidence. Because an 80-year-old father doesn't fit the standard profile of a John, jurors rejected the notion that Towery could have had such a relationship with Brittany or any other sex worker. Similarly, juries were unlikely to believe the testimony of two women with long criminal records. Next, a defense psychiatrist took the stand. She'd examined Brittany since her arrest and now told the court that she diagnosed Brittany with PTSD and battered woman syndrome, or BWS. These diagnoses were consistent with Brittany's self-defense story. First, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a form of anxiety that manifests after a traumatic event. PTSD is closely associated with military service, but according to the American Psychological Association, civilians can develop PTSD after events like car crashes, accidents, or assaults. The prosecution was trying to depict Brittany as a cold-blooded murderer who mercilessly slaughtered Towery and then walked away without a twinge of guilt. With a PTSD diagnosis, the defense instead implied that Brittany was a survivor who was still grappling with the emotional fallout of Towery's vicious attack. Brittany's second diagnosis was BWS, a form of PTSD. According to the DSM-5, BWS afflicts victims of intimate partner violence. The majority of people diagnosed with BWS are women. This also served Brittany's defense, as Brittany's BWS suggested that she and Towery had an ongoing relationship. They didn't meet by chance before she attempted to rob him, nor was this instance the first time Towery had been violent with Brittany. 
It's also possible that Brittany could have developed PTSD and BWS after violent affairs with other men. But her counsel focused on how these diagnoses fit into Brittany's self-defense narrative. Ultimately, the narrative failed to sway jurors. The trial concluded on March 13, 1998, and Brittany Holberg was found guilty of capital murder. At the age of 25, she was sentenced to death by lethal injection. The verdict was stunning. In an interview, Brittany described her feelings, saying, I can't even explain to you what it's like to have someone say, you are sentenced to die. It's words. You feel helpless, numb. It's almost as if your emotions shut you down. When Brittany entered death row at a prison in Gatesville, Texas, she felt like she was dreaming. She couldn't believe that she would die for her crimes. For weeks, she existed in a trance-like state, barely processing what went on around her. Patrick Hudson of the University of Edinburgh's Law Department described a condition known as death row phenomenon. As inmates condemned to capital punishment file appeals, their internment grows longer and longer. Meanwhile, these convicts spend more time grappling with the psychological horror of their impending death and must live in the harsh conditions on death row longer. Some anti-death penalty advocates have pointed to death row phenomenon as a human rights abuse. But the fear of her looming execution was just one horror Brittany had to face. In the meantime, she had to deal with the day-to-day -day petty abuses that were common for convicted criminals. As Brittany said in a statement to the press, quote, you would not believe the treatment we are given. Patients are brought in at all times of the day and night in various stages of hysteria or fear or anger. We have been subjected to numerous gassings. We have witnessed numerous women who are most obviously out of their senses have excessive uses of force applied, such as slamming them to the floor and against the walls. I won't even begin to put a name or put a number on how many nights I've sat up listening to some poor woman scream out as officers sit around laughing or making fun of her. Early on in her sentence, Brittany went through the prison's rehab program to finally break her drug addiction. Her main motivation was her daughter, Mackenzie, now five years old. Brittany couldn't undo the fact that she'd killed a man and been sentenced to death, but she could still try to be a better role model for her daughter. With this incentive, Brittany finally managed to get clean and stay that way. During her incarceration, Brittany spoke out about prisoners' rights and the abuses she'd personally witnessed or experienced. She also campaigned to have the death penalty repealed. She spoke to any member of the press who would listen to her. As we said earlier, in January 2007, the adult magazine Maxim published an article titled Babes Behaving Badly. 34-year-old Brittany was included among the so-called hottest women in prison. While she titillated the press, Brittany mounted the best legal defense she could afford. On November 29, 2000, a judge overturned her request for an appeal. Several years later, in May 2013, 
40-year-old Brittany once again filed, but a judge ruled against her in October. But Brittany and her lawyers continued their efforts. Over the course of 21 years, Brittany filed three appeals, the maximum allowed at the state level. She also made numerous claims at the federal level. To date, she has not been able to successfully overturn her conviction. Brittany Holberg's legal case, including her numerous appeals, cost the state of Texas more than $400,000. That number will only increase if any of her federal appeals are successful. Her continued efforts made Brittany a poster child for the anti-capital punishment movement. Activists pointed out that Brittany, like many death row inmates, cost Texas taxpayers significantly more than she would have if she had received a lifetime sentence. Texas, where Brittany lived most of her life and sat on death row, has one of the highest execution rates in the country. Most death row inmates in the state spend an average of nearly 16 years awaiting execution. Former Randall County Criminal District Attorney James Farron said that overseeing Brittany's lengthy and expensive appeals cases led him to reevaluate his stance on the death penalty. While he didn't disagree with the morality of capital punishment, Brittany's case demonstrated to him the impracticality of execution for all but the most dangerous offenders. As of the summer of 2019, 46-year-old Brittany is still on death row in Texas. 21 years have passed since her sentencing. She continues to advocate for prisoners' rights and speaks out against the death penalty. Experts on Brittany's case predict that her case won't be resolved for another five years at the earliest. In the meantime, the death penalty has become increasingly unpopular in the United States. According to the Pew Research Center, when Brittany was sentenced in the mid-90s, national approval for the death penalty was close to 80 percent. As of 2018, only about half of the U.S. population approved of capital punishment. But some see Brittany's advocacy as a miscarriage of justice. A.B. Towery's son, Russell Towery, said in an interview, quote, I don't want to die before she does. I want to stand there as she's kicking and screaming, going to the death gurney. I want her to think about what my dad went through when she didn't even know his name. She is evil and needs to be destroyed. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Dick Schroeder. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.